Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. We will be starting a new season of Jury Duty on February 28th with our examination of a new trial, and we will have more information about that in this podcast feed in the coming days. However, before we start Jury Duty Season 4, we are revisiting the trial of Robert Durst, which we covered in Seasons 1 and 2 of this podcast. Jury Duty has secured exclusive interviews with two of the jurors, Carmen Kliteka and John Okanishi, who were part of the Los Angeles panel that convicted Robert Durst of the murder of his good friend, Susan Berman. In our last episode, Carmen and John discussed their memories of the first set of opening statements in the trial back in March of 2020. In this episode, they tell us about their experiences during the two days of witness testimony in March of 2020 before the trial was suspended. We will also hear how they spent the 15-month hiatus in the trial. At the end of the episode, we will relive some of the key moments that they mention by playing excerpts of the trial audio that they reference. That's coming up right after the break. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We begin our exploration of the early witness testimony by returning to my conversation with juror number 12 and four-person, Carmen Kliteka. Initially, we heard from some of Susan Berman's neighbors, and probably the most memorable of those was Catherine Shaw Cutter. Do you remember anything about her testimony? I remember that hearing the, the phone call to the police. I remember her saying something about how careful she was with her dogs. And that she always, like, had them on a leash and that she was, like, very methodical about how she handled her home and her dogs. So when she saw that the door was open and that the dogs were running around, that she knew that something was wrong. I'm going to move on to Ann Anderson Doyle, who traveled a long way to testify just as the pandemic was really starting to become very serious here in the United States. She gave some very emotional testimony. Can you take me through your experience of hearing her testimony? So first of all, I I felt she was a very credible witness and it was quite moving. She described the terrace and then when she talked about how Kathy came over and knocked on her window and in the rain and she was like shaken up and and she was all wet and she said she was like dog she was shaking like a dog and that description was just so like powerful and how terrified Kathy was and I thought she was a good friend to her and very brave for hiding her in in her bathroom and and offering her some protection quite moving And then right after her came Robert Durst's brother, Thomas Durst, who I know from my perspective, being in the courtroom on those days, made a huge impression on me. Do you remember his testimony? Absolutely. I was shocked to see how traumatized this man was. Like, 
he was telling us about what had happened to him with his brother. And he was, you can see like so much pain as, as he was recounting and, and reliving that story. It, it filled the courtroom. And there was a, a moment where he was just so like, focused in, in, in what he was telling us. It was, you know, the the story of, of um, the revolving doors in the hotel and, and how he was he was thrown. I think he said he was thrown into the street and because his, his brother had, had pushed the doors and how how hurt he was by this and and how hurt he was by his brother's reaction to his injury. I mean, can you imagine? This must have been like 50 years ago at least. And he's recalling it with so much pain. And I imagine that's just one of many events. Did the combination of Ann Anderson Doyle's description of Kathy Durst, like a frightened dog, and Thomas Durst's description of Robert Durst as strong, not like he is now, and having done something so sudden and violent, did that shift your perspective of the man who was sitting in a wheelchair in court looking frail? Oh, 100%. So I was getting a, a different picture. You know, it wasn't just, you know, this person's being accused of this or that. These are actual events and there's someone right in front of me telling me like how he was affected and what happened to him and then uh there was um ann anderson doyle describing what what she saw they they were starting to paint a, a picture for me the person that robert durst was it was not favorable for him and it made me think that this might be, you know, the stuff that he's being accused of, this might be something that he he could do very easily without giving it a second thought. The next day on March 12th, we had the testimony of Kathy Durst's siblings, James McCormick and Virginia McKeon. Do you remember their testimony? I do remember thinking to myself afterwards you know, he, he was at, at the Christmas party and his sister's being taken out by, by her hair. She, she was being abused and he didn't do anything to defend her. How do you do that? How do you stand there and let some man take your sister by the hair? How do you do that? Had any of my brothers have witnessed any of that, that man would, would not be here to tell about it. What was your experience during the pandemic and during the, the shutdown? Well, you know, after being sworn in on, on the jury and hearing the opening statements and seeing the first uh, witnesses, you know, I was in this like 1000 percent, you know, my full uh, focus and attention was on this. And I was committed to seeing it through when I, I, I was sworn in. I was I gave my full commitment. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be here 100%. And, you're, and this case is going to have the full benefit of having me here. And that's what I was there to give. And so then, you know, all of a sudden we start hearing about this COVID-19 
things are, are, are starting to go a little bit crazy. And I get a phone call from my boss. She tells me that I need to develop a test to detect COVID-19. And I said, well, I can't because I'm on jury duty. And I said, you know, you guys are going to have to figure something else out. She said, no, you don't understand. This is like, this is a big deal. And it's high profile. And um, you and your team have to do this. And I thought, well, there's no way. I'm too busy. But I said, okay, I'll look into it. And then the next day, we were told that the, the case was going to be put on hold. So is that what you did during the break? You developed a COVID-19 test? Yes. So as soon as I heard that, I called my boss and I said, okay, we're, we're getting started today. I came back to the laboratory and we worked on this test day and night for a couple of weeks. We developed it and we started testing immediately. And what kind of a test was it? PCR. So we, we developed the first uh, PCR test in the VA system, which is the largest healthcare in the country. So I expected this pandemic thing to sort of die down by probably like end of summer. And I fully expected to be back in court like in September. And uh, September came and went. And there was no sign of this pandemic letting up. I was actually surprised. And so 2020 turns into 2021. You get through the new year. The spring is coming. What was your expectation as the spring of 2021 approached? So I thought maybe that was it was going to get pushed again, just given that everyone was still wearing masks. You know, how in the world are they going to pull that off? You know, having this trial and everybody's masked up. And how are you going to provide social distancing? Like, are we going to Zoom? You know, I also thought, well, you know, all these cases are going to start piling up. And uh, they need to be addressed somehow. And they have to figure out a way to keep things moving. So I don't know, maybe, maybe we will go back. You know, they figured something out. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We now go back to my interview with juror number two, John Okanishi, and hear his memories of the witnesses who took the stand in the trial of Robert Durst in March of 2020, just before the trial was paused Due to the pandemic. I'm going to move on to the initial witnesses before the break and what your memory is of them. Perhaps the first witness that made a very powerful emotional impression was Ann Anderson Doyle. What is your memory of her testimony? Yeah, well, I found her uh, very credible. The one thing I think that was consistent amongst all of the, uh, the witnesses that the prosecution brought forth, they were all extremely, you know, credible and 
you know, despite the efforts of the, you know, the defense to sort of, you know, poke holes in their story, the credibility of the prosecution's witnesses was, was always very powerful to me. And hers was no exception. You know, I, I really sincerely, based upon her testimony, you know, understood that, that Kathy Durst was indeed being physically abused by Robert Durst. The next witness that made a significant impression was, of course, Robert Durst's brother, Thomas. Do you remember his testimony? Very much so. I would say of all the witnesses, you know, he was, um, he probably made the most, you know, impression in that, you know, he was very, very adamant that he didn't want to be there. He seemed kind of a, like a meek or a soft-spoken person. And then when he was, uh, you know, discussing um, some of these uh, encounters he had with, with, uh, with Robert Durst, you know, just screamed that out, you know, caught all of us uh, in the courtroom, in the jury, you know, off guard. And uh, it, it just made me think these things really happened. Putting things into much more emotional context like that, it, it really gave, gave me more insight into who Robert Durst, what kind of person he really is. And during Thomas Durst's testimony, when he told that revolving door story, he made reference to the fact that Robert Durst at that time was strong, not like he looks now. Do you remember when he did that? Yes, I do recall that. It sort of reiterated also, I think, a point the prosecution made that, you know, you're looking at this, this you know, frail old man sitting there on, on the courtroom. I mean, don't let that appearance you know, dissuade you from the fact that, you know, this man at some point was capable of, of multiple murders. On the second day of testimony and the last day of testimony before the trial was shut down, you heard from James McCormick and Virginia McKeon, siblings of Kathy Durst. What is your memory of their testimony? You know, you knew from his, his testimony, there was no doubt in his mind. There was no doubt that Robert Durst killed Kathy Durst. And it's been, you know, something which has, you know, haunted the family for decades. And then finally, you know, he wants to see closure on this. So from an emotional impact, I would say that James McCormick's, you know, testimony had one of the most moving testimonies to me. Yeah, Virginia, I don't really recall her so much, but yeah, the brother, I very much do so. Do you remember the defense in questioning some of the prosecution's witnesses trying to paint Kathy Durst as a drug abuser and a cocaine abuser? Yes. So I think the, the defense's efforts to portray, you know, anyone who used cocaine, you know, whether it was, you know, yeah, recreationally, that anyone who takes cocaine is a, is a drug addict. Certainly they were so uh, forceful and, and vocal in portraying, you know, Kathy as a, as a drug addict. That would be kind of the takeaway that, that you would get if they were successful in their efforts. Despite the defense's efforts to uh, you know, portray her as a, uh, as a drug addict, I thought that was weak. And the one thing I do remember, especially from Thomas Durst's testimony, there was a question as to what symptoms or characteristics would you consider? Because I think Thomas Durst said, yeah, I don't know anything about you know, cocaine. 
And there was a question from the defense to him, what, what, do you, what do you think would be a characteristic of someone who was a cocaine addict? And Thomas, he said this, it was pretty funny. He goes, someone who's snorting cocaine all the time. <laughs> I, yeah, I thought that one statement sort of made the defense's arguments that Kathy Durst was a cocaine addict even more ludicrous. How did you find out that you wouldn't be returning to court? Someone from the court would, would call us up on our phones uh, and leave messages or, or talk to us and just let, let us know what the, uh, what the status is. And, you know, once we had the initial um, uh, shutdown, I don't know, I, I don't really recall if there was an expectation as to when we would come back. Uh, certainly it wasn't a year. It was, I think, you know, a couple weeks or what, maybe it was months. But then throughout the year, we'd always get, you know, updates all of those, you know, updates that, you know, we, we got, you know, had, you know, stretched out to over a year. You know, at one point I was like, gosh, can we even postpone the trial, you know, this long at some point? You know, I, I, I said I wouldn't be surprised if they had just, you know, called a, uh, a mistrial based upon the coronavirus. But yeah, eventually, yeah, we did come back. Was there any moment during the hiatus when you thought that you might not be able to return? Well, I always expected that I would return again. I was retired or I am retired. I'll be honest though. I said, there is no way all of those jurors from you know the previous year are going to return for a trial that was expected to be five months. And now it's a year later, we're still in a pandemic. And these were people, they weren't in my situation. They weren't retired. They had careers, families. One person was planning for a wedding. You know, there is no way we're going to have enough jurors to continue this. But to my great shock, every single person came back. We are now going to relive some of the impactful moments mentioned by Carmen and John in their reflections on the first witnesses in the trial. First, we are going to hear Catherine Shawcutter's 911 call that Carmen mentioned made an impression on her. LAPD operator 348. Yes, hi. Um, I live in Benedict Canyon, and um, my next-door neighbor, one of our other neighbors, um, found her dog on the street yesterday. Uh-huh. And um, Was it dead? Or? Oh, no, 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 no. We have her. The problem is um, they gave us the dog, and we went over next door to see if Susan was home, and her car's in the driveway. She's not answering her door. There are packages on her doorstep. She's not answering her phone. Her back door is wide open, so I don't know what's going on. The door is it's open door. Y'all did not go inside. Oh, no, we're not. <laughs> no, we're not. And we have, and her other dogs are in her yard, and they're barking their little heads off, and um, she would not. I mean, our area, there are a lot of animals. Nobody leaves their dog out overnight, so very weird. Okay, what's her address? Um, actually, it's a good question. I can give you mine. She's next door. I'm okay. not sure her number. Yeah, what's your address? 1531 uh-huh. Benedict Canyon Drive. My, I hope it's okay. Uh, me too. <laughs> she lives by herself, and I hate to think. Yeah. Is she elderly? Or? Not particularly, but you never know. I mean, teenagers hit their head in the shower, and Next, we have an excerpt of Ann Anderson Doyle's testimony that both Carmen and John found very credible. 
Oh, when she was in those acute stress modes, she would be, you know, she would come over in her, you know, in her, in her pajamas or in, you know, in her whatever loungewear or underwear, whatever you call it. And she would be disheveled. She would be, it would be a little bit like a stray dog that would come out of the rain and she would just want to get away. And, and it would, I would say it would have been hugely embarrassing for her, but she probably felt that she had to, yeah, she. She felt that she that I was that she could trust me and that I would not I would let her in and we we talk to each other and stuff. In describing her physical appearance when she came over, her physical demeanor, have you previously? Well, she was very cowering, and she was she would be uh, hair would, would be disheveled. She'd be crying. She'd be shaking. She'd be you know she'd be. A complete mess basically you know well from that night my specific memory was that they'd had a fight about this signing some kind of document and that the fight had gotten out of control and she was subsequently fearful for her for her life both carmen and john also found robert durst's brother thomas's testimony particularly memorable here are two excerpts from that testimony First, we have Thomas's recreation of how Robert angrily confronted him about Thomas giving Kathy money without Robert's knowledge. I know she asked you for money. So the uh, for the record, to capture, there was a this is an, a very angry tone that the witness used when he when he uh, stated those words. He shouted this, those words in an angry tone. Mr. Durst, um, when you said that, um, how did you take that? I felt. Like I was about to die. We also have Thomas Durst's testimony regarding an incident that he cited as an example of his brother's capacity for sadistic cruelty. He relates that his father Seymour was walking through the revolving door of a building with Thomas and Robert following behind. So Seymour goes through the revolving door first, then I go into the revolving door, and from behind, like a sneak, he takes his full strength, and you can't think of him this way. He was strong in those days. He took his full strength, and he shoved the glass, and I went around and around, and I fell out. Oh, my God. I fell out on the street, on my knees, and he's guffawing. It's the funniest thing he's ever seen in his entire life. An elderly gentleman had gotten into the, into the revolving door before me, I mean, after me, and he also ended up on the floor, but he was on the floor inside the building. And he's shouting, idiots, idiots, like I had something to do with this. Bob is guffawing. Seymour is his usual self, walking away. Who are these people? I don't know. And I'm, you know, I, I'm listening to my brother Levinson. He's just holding his gut. It is so funny. Next, we have Kathy's brother James McCormick's testimony about the incident in which Robert Durst pulled Kathy out of the McCormick family home by the hair. Can you describe, was there an incident that occurred at one of these holiday gatherings? Yes. Um, can, and can you please describe, to the best you remember, what happened? Yeah, there was a Christmas gathering um, at my mom's house. We had our sit-down dinner, and then the sit-down dinner let you, uh, you know, an after dinner cocktail. Uh, we were at my mom's 
got the living room, and I was on this end of the couch, and Kathy was on this end of the couch. Indicating uh, opposite ends of the couch, for the record. Opposite ends of the couch, as close as I am to this gentleman. And opposite me was my grandma. She was Grandma Soft. She was going to be 90 that year. And uh, Bob had, uh, you know, started the process of going home, but he had to warm up the diesel, the 210 diesel, which is a, a diesel that, you know, you have, you have a gallon of gasoline into the diesel fuel just to keep it from freezing in the wintertime. So he went out to warm the car, and he was kind of like impatient. Um, and Kathy was sitting there with a glass of red wine and a bottle of beer. And unfortunately, I probably will be thinking this till the day I die. But the next thing I know, Bob insisted that you get up. Kathy wanted to continue a conversation because the glass wasn't complete uh, with myself and my grandma. And uh, you know, he got impatient. He went out and then he came back in very quickly, um, walked over as quickly, but that's like, you know, a very quick step. Greg Kathy went on top of her head like that, yanked her, and she went with the yank. The way it happened, it was so spontaneous and unexpected. I mean, you really go into a temporary state of shock, like, you know, it's like a lightning bolt. And the next thing you know, Kathy got up and was going with Bob, and they went literally to the door when I'm still sitting there, like, in shock, little shock. And Kathy's coat was on the bench by the door. It's where mom used to keep the, where you store your coats when you come to visit. She grabbed the coat and she turned and she said something to the effect, it's all right, Jim. And then she went out the door and that was the end of that. And finally, we have James McCormick's testimony about the lingering heartbreak that Kathy's disappearance caused their mother. Did she ever get over the loss of her youngest daughter? I don't believe so. I think she kind of put her on her shelves at times. But at times, I mean, when I go visit my mom, I still remember when she was becoming more infirm, physically more infirm. Her mind was still short. Um, I'd go visit her and she had a room in the back with a TV where she would sit and watch her shows. Um, and she, first thing she'd have would be the stack of the New York Times weekend edition, which we gave to us a subscription gift. And she'd have the real estate pages open. And she frequently, I, I swear on a Bible, which I already have, uh, you know, the subject would come up and she goes, oh, the Durst, watch yourself, they're powerful people. That concludes this bonus episode of Jury Duty. Join us on our next episode as we hear from Carmen and John about their experiences during their return to the courtroom after a 15-month pandemic-induced hiatus, as well as their memories of the first witnesses called to the stand by the prosecution after the hiatus. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our consulting producer is Paul Butler. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music was provided by Strike Audio. 
trial audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery.